Welcome into the Yachts and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Preem, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Friday edition, wherever you are. It's Friday. Let's have a good day. Uh, today on the show, the reason it's Jared and I is because we're the two guys that have covered uh, extensively the Oregon men's basketball program on DuckTerritory.com. Season's over, uh, if you did not know that. 21-15, and 15, they lost in the quarterfinals to Wisconsin in a home game that was a disappointing loss, 61-58. The Ducks missed something like eight or nine free throws in that game. They lost by three points. Dana Altman said, nothing is worse than losing a game when you play hard and you lose because you miss free throws. Uh, 100% true. Uh, We're not going to talk too much about that game. We're going to certainly talk, Jared, about what happened after that game. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll get to that here in a little bit, but this is going to be a recap. Uh, look ahead to the offseason, maybe a peek ahead to next season. Um, but our overall take on the theme of this season, 21-14 and 14 record for the Oregon Ducks this season. They finished fourth in the Pac-12 Conference, which typically is enough to get you into the NCAA tournament, but some losses early in the season to teams – like UC Irvine by 13 uh, to Utah Valley by five at home, both of those at home, uh, three straight losses to Houston, UConn, and Michigan State, which we should say three Some sweet good teams 16 to teams. Lose to. Yes, yeah. three three straight. You know those three. Those are three sweet 16 teams. Uh, UConn is on their way to the Elite Eight. Houston will play tonight. Michigan State lost a heartbreaker, a fancy game to Kansas State. But then you've also got a, a disastrous road loss at Stanford, uh, a disastrous road loss where you weren't even competitive, uh, 27-point loss at Colorado, um, three straight losses at the tail end of the regular season at home to UCLA, at Washington by one in overtime, and then by three at Washington State. Kind of did the Ducks in. Um is, is it as simply as that this team just didn't have shooters? I mean, you and I have talked that sense of this, but mm-hmm. has that been their biggest issue? Or do you feel like there were bigger things at play or equally as important issues with the squad? Oh, man. Um, I think that there were a lot of issues on this team. I think that shooting yeah. was definitely one of them uh, because – you know, and, you know, if you're new to basketball here, you, it's good when the ball goes through the net, not off the rim. Um, and yeah. Oregon did a lot of the off the rimming. Um, it was just a po- very poor shooting season. Um, there really wasn't anybody who you could consistently rely on, except maybe Richardson if he was feeling up to the task of either making a shot or at least taking a shot because he'll go through games where he just doesn't take shots either. Um, yeah. I think the most reliable guy was Nafale Dante. And, you know, as much as, as a great guy as he is, as much as a great interview as he is and how good of a ball player he is, um, he's a little bit outdated. And, you know, it's tough to run a whole college basketball offense um, with a post, with a true five. And you look at the guys in the tournament right now, other than uh, Adama Sonogo for UConn and Drew Timmy for Gonzaga, uh, there's there's not really a true true five left in the tournament. All these guys are interchangeable. You look at that Michigan State and Kansas State game that Matt mentioned earlier, and how great it was, 98 to 95 or 94, whatever it was in overtime. Uh, there wasn't a true five on the court, like basically all yeah. game long. It was just interchangeable fours and fives who could guard in the perimeter and do all that stuff. But I think that the real faults of this team came down to. Some type of leadership, which is more in the locker room. So I won't ever, I won't touch on that because I'm not in the locker room. But it looked like it from an on-court perspective. Basketball IQ. This just wasn't a, a Dane Altman team that understood defensive assignments well enough. Um, and I, I think the lack of a true number one. I think you had a lot of good number twos and number threes out there, but yeah, I think you were pushing people into a number one position. Uh, every game, it was probably somebody different. It was Kuznard, Richardson, Dante. I mean, it was sores in the tournament for all sakes and purposes, but there wasn't a number one guy. There wasn't a true dude. There wasn't a guy who's like, get me the ball if there's four seconds left. There wasn't a Duarte. There wasn't a Eugene Amarui. There wasn't a Peyton Pritchard, a Dylan Brooks, yada, yada, yada. And I think that's really what did them in because I don't, 
in those games like Utah Valley in the very beginning of the season, I know they had injuries, but there's no one who kind of picks up the team and says, guys, we, we can't, we can't be losing to Utah Valley. Like this can't be happening. So I think that's no one the, took over the game. No, and uh, like never happened. Uh, Nafale had his moments, but and what Richardson had his moments, but you want a guy who's going to go all 40 minutes taking over the game. So to me, I think that was the biggest crux this season, but there were a lot of issues. I think there were a lot of issues that stemmed probably based off the fact that there was no number one, like a true leader. Oregon shot 32% on three-pointers this season, 320th in the country out of 360 teams. It's pretty crazy to see that there were teams that were worse than that. Um, that's That's the worst percentage in the Dana Altman era. It's the second worst percentage in Oregon program history that we could find. Uh, it really didn't get any better in league play. It just went up to 32.6%. Now, uh, to Jared's point, like, Infale Dante is an outdated st- stylistic player, back to the basket, in the paint type, type player. Uh, very effective in that mm-hmm. regard, though. Um, and as a team, Oregon was very effective. Uh, they led the league. And two-point field goal percentage this season at 54.4%. A lot of that was behind uh, Infale Dante, who shot an impressive 61.4% from the field. Uh, it's a number that's probably going to be right around top 10 all-time for a, a single season. Uh, he already holds the record, I believe, for a single-season field goal percentage um, in, in a season. Yeah, he, he did it the year before. 67.5 so you've you've you had some success it just didn't fit the way today's game is played and we would be not telling the full context of the season two though <coughs> excuse me and this is gonna come across as an excuse i think um but it was un you know it wasn't just a normal season for injuries. Oregon was plagued by them. Uh, and Folly mm-hmm. Dante, Jermaine Kuznard, Will Richardson, Keyshawn Bartholomew, Nate Biddle, and Brendan Rigsby. Uh, those six players all started games. Dante, Kuznard, and Richardson were basically full-time starters. Biddle was basically started two-thirds of the season. Um, and those six guys combined missed 60 games. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that is a large number. Um, we have to mention that, you know, Oregon was at times during the season having to play walk-ons. They were playing walk-ons at the end of the year because they didn't have the depth. They didn't, they didn't have guys available because of injury. Um, is the injuries the reason why number one didn't emerge? Is the injuries why three-point shooting uh, didn't emerge? Is the injuries why early season losses at home happened no um but it didn't help either like you have to make you have to make the point and say that they're not the the reason but it it probably factored into it with a whole bunch of the other stuff that we've talked about um i I do want to say though that kuznard and bartholomew in particular when they got back from their injuries and they hit conference play which they played most of their games this season they kicked up a notch from three-point shooting. Bartholomew was a 42% three-point shooter in league play. Uh, Jermaine Kuznard was a 36% three-point shooter in league play. And you, those are the numbers that you're wanting to see and which should give you some kind of confidence. You know, We'll talk about this later, but should give you mm-hmm. some of that confidence, some of that excitement to next season with them both coming back because when they got into their stride after working through the injuries – they were kind of good three-point shooters, but they weren't, you know, they weren't consistent enough and they didn't have the help around them to overcome it. Yeah, and I think the the last part there is what's most important, especially when those guys are coming back. Uh, they weren't consistent enough. And those are good yeah. percentages on paper, but yep. I, I feel like a lot of Kuznard's, you know, three-point prowess came in that, like, Arizona game just right off the bat where it's like, oh, he's – five of six from deep or whatever he finished was. And that looks really great at the end of the day. And it really helps your stats. But 
Um, you know, Bar Bartholomew was 42% from conference play. I don't have the stats in front of me. I don't know what he was in the season, but I kind of like to look back at the 2020, 2021 team where it went through the pandemic and those guys had yeah. a lot of shooters and that was, you know, that's been Oregon's best team in the last couple of seasons. And, you know, the lowest percentage of somebody who shot over 33s that season was 35%. And that was Eric Williams Jr. who, who took a lot of threes. So that was more of yep. just, you know, natural attrition. But Amarui, Chris Duarte, Richardson, even uh, get this, even Dalen Terry, you remember him? Or Jalen Terry, <laughs> excuse me. Um, he was 39%. Yeah, yeah oh, he was 30, 39% from deep. So those that's what you want. You want consistency. And I remember when Oregon um, landed both of those guys in the transfer portal that there was some hesitancy that neither of these guys were good shooters at Colorado for uh, Bartholomew or South Carolina for Kuznard. And although I liked Kuznard's stroke, yeah, you have to see the ball go in. And, and South yep. Carolina just didn't. And I thought that this year he looked a lot better. I think it's a it's a stroke that you can work with. I think Oregon Oregon's coaching staff has done a really good job in years past about uh, getting shooters to a better set, um, making sure they're balanced, making sure their follow through stays stays great. Um, so I think that there's stuff to work there with, but I think they still need shooting, and I think it's pretty obvious at this point. Um, I wanted to touch quickly on the injury stuff. Yeah, you know, a long a long time ago, I mentioned that I liked Oregon when they only had eight or nine players because mm -hmm. they have the rotation and they pl were playing decent at that time. It's still tough when the guys that were injured were because those are really talented players. They're going to help almost, you know, basically like any college basketball team in the country. But, you know, in the NIT, that rotation suddenly dwindled down to eight or nine guys again. And, you know, I, I know that they lost to Wisconsin, but they looked pretty good out there. And, I think that's a message in the future is that, you know, Oregon, if they want tighter to bring in tighter rotations and what really sucks about that idea is if you do recruit for a tighter rotation and you get nine scholarship players, what happens if they have another 2022, 2023 season where they have three or four guys miss the start of the season and then suddenly you have like six or seven scholarship athletes. So they can't do that. Just, in terms of wanting to keep their tournament hopes alive in general. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if Oregon in the future goes with a little bit more of like a project at the end of the bench or the last two or three scholarship spots and tries to tighten up their rotation. Cause I always think that a Dan Altman team is just better with an eight or nine man rotation. Um, they know their roles, they know their jobs. Um, Dana really has to just coach those eight or nine guys and, I think that message comes across a lot better instead of this year where it's a legitimate 10 to 11 players who can all play at the D1 level and you have to try to find minutes for them. Or, you know, obviously you risk them leaving in the transfer portal, which might have happened irregardless of minutes or excuse me, regardless, right. irregardless is a silly word. Um, <laughs> so, but regardless of minutes, they were probably going to leave anyway, but now they're even more likely to leave because you have Tyron Williams, who was one of the top junior college recruits in the country um, just not getting minutes at all. And, you know, that, that falls in line with the uh, basketball IQ or the leadership portion where, you know, that's a guy who probably didn't get minutes for a reason. I don't think he was there for, you know, a year that uh, he could improve his his worth and then come out in his second year at Oregon like he used to be back in the day. Like he was a good good player out of junior college. It just seemed like he never got into the flow of Dana's defense. So I don't know. I, I think that's. I think it's that's, worth noting. That's my I mean, thoughts like, there. yeah, like the nineteen twenty team, the one Peyton Pritchard's final season. They they essentially mm -hmm. had ten guys that played in all the games, but if you really look at it, they they had five guys play more than fourteen minutes a game, and you know they were relying on basically five, you know. Three guys, Peyton Pritchard, Chris Duarte, and Will Richardson to play 30 minutes or more. Shakur mm -hmm. Juson was just under there at 28. And then everybody else, it was kind of like in one more guy that played above 20. And then everybody else was in that like 10, you know, the 12 minute range. And it was basically, if you remember that season, it was basically Dana figuring out, okay, this guy's not playing good in the first half. He's not going to play in the second half. This guy's playing good. 
he'll be that seventh guy that plays, you know, a good chunk of yeah. the second half if he comes off the bench. And you it's the same way that hand. happened. Yeah. And it was the same way that happened the year that you're talking about, the COVID year. I mean, that that team had five guys average 30 or more minutes a game. Mm-hmm. And it had two or three guys, uh, Chandler Lawson, Amari Hardy, and Jalen Terry. Those were your three that you that you played consistently off the bench. And right. I think there's something there. I, I don't know if <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know if there's you know a, a correlation to that or not, or if Dana just didn't like the guys this season. He was just continually trying to rotate in and out and, and find players, but you go and you look at the minutes played for the best teams that Oregon has had. Um, I'm going to pull up the final four team. Yeah, I just, I just and, did. And it's, it's pretty much the same thing. It's that, you know, that one was six guys playing six or seven guys playing 20 or more minutes. And then everybody else hardly played. Mm-hmm. And there, I think there's something there to that. Um, Dana did say that they're going to fill all 12 scholarship spots uh, that, that, that they have. Um, now, does that mean that they're going to fill it with players that they want to play or is it next season or is it players with a guy that in mind of, Hey, you're going to redshirt, you're going to develop, uh, you maybe maybe you need a year away, uh, to, you know, from your previous stop in the portal just to kind of reset your career and reshape your game. I, I don't know what that, you know, that answer is right now, but I think that's a good point. And it's, and it's one that maybe you need to look, you know, we need to look into more and, and maybe talk with Dana about is rotations, tight rotations. The, you know, you see it all the time in college basketball late in the year. Rotations get short. Guys yep. settle onto their lineups, and you know that's what they do. And they, you know, we, we saw it with Oregon, like you said, in the NIT, and they played better. Wonder if that some of it's the lack of fear of looking over your shoulder of if I make a mistake, am I coming out? It might be. It, it certainly might be. Um, I just, I mean, for the for the older teams, it was definitely like this. These are the guys who Dana trusts, and for the NIT and and in the early parts of the season, you know, Dana didn't have an option there. He wasn't going to put in walk ons no matter how much how much he trusted them, just because they weren't going to be able to live up to that competition. But in the NIT, yeah, it might be a kind of a, a relief off your shoulder that, you know, if I do make a mistake. I'll be okay because he doesn't have anybody else left to play. Um, right. So I don't know. That's a tough. That's a tough question. It's like, does it make a difference in the NIT because there were so many injuries and that's why there was a tight rotation? But you know, going through the stats of it all, it, it's clear that that Dana likes to play seven or eight guys, and that's that's his bread and butter and his good teams is that there's seven or eight guys that he trusts that will play over you know 15 16 minutes a night and then everybody else is just hey maybe there's some foul trouble you can get in the game and i think that would be great for oregon going into next year it just i think it's really hard nowadays to consistently get guys that are in that six or or that seven or eight man rotation because you don't know who's coming back right they want to play you don't know who's coming back you don't know who's going to jump into the portal Um, you don't know what connections you're going to have with players that jump into the portal um, so I think it's difficult for, and I'm not saying this is like, you know, Dana is outdated because he's done very well in the transfer portal these last couple yeah. of seasons, um, you know, barring this last one and the year, I guess the year before that he's, he's done well and he's recruited well um, on paper and on the court. So I, I think it's, it's just a really, I think it's probably the top, the hardest time to be a college basketball coach. Uh, it's probably in quite some time. I'm not going to say ever because I don't know college basketball history that well. <laughs> but it's probably a very long time because, you know, there's thousands of players out there that all just want to play and they will leave your school if they don't get that opportunity. Let's segue to what happened after the season ending loss to Wisconsin. Um, Dana Altman was asked a question um, about needing more assistant coaches, more support staff uh, going along the line of, you know, what programs like Baylor, Houston, Wisconsin, Michigan State, Villanova, teams that Oregon has played outside of the conference the last couple of seasons. And, you know, like 
he brought up the fact that they're going to reevaluate it, but then it led to him. And I think it was a, a man that was upset, a man that was frustrated, just blowing off some steam. Um, mm-hmm. But this is his comment. Uh, we should have had more people here. All right. I mean, the guys have played hard. Okay. 3,300 people, you know, it's not good enough. If it's me, then get rid of me. If you need somebody else to be a promoter, do something. But 3,300 people, that's embarrassing. Um, he then later said, if it is me, then make the change. Make the change. Somebody will hire me. I'll go coach junior college ball again. I loved junior college ball. Those guys were dogs. They wanted to be in the gym <laughs> all the time. Um, he appreciated the people that did show up to the game. Um, he did say that Oregon has a, a good commitment to college basketball. Um, but it was, I think it was a boiling point. I don't think he was, he was referencing a singular game and a lot of people on social media, a lot of fans, a lot of, uh, people outside of the program were harping on Dana for complaining about, um, an NIT game, which like, look, yeah, yes, it's an NIT game. You're not going to get your normal crowds. You know, you, if, if you kind of get a uh, half full arena, that's a good day. But I, I think this was more of a season long frustration that boiled over at the final game of the season. Um, attendance is down per game. Uh, it, it's the lowest per game average in Altman's time at 5,937 people per game. It's also the lowest Pac-12 average that Oregon has had uh, in Altman's time, 6,476 people per game. And we should note six years in a row now, the Pac-12 home average for Oregon men's basketball has gone down from the year before. Um, What did you make of these comments? Is it like – I, I think there's something wrong, not just with on the court, but also off the court. I don't think there's anyone here who, if you're associated with Oregon men's basketball, whether it's your coach, an assistant coach, a player, an administrator on, on staff, the athletic department, the marketing team, the in-game arena operations, I, I don't think there is one person who can raise their hand and say, I'm, I have no fault in what's going on right now with the program. Yeah, no, I agree. And I love Dana for making these comments because I, I agree with you, Matt, that it was just a, you know, a complete, it was a boiling point. He finally hit it. Um, it happened after a terrible loss where they miss eight free throws and that that makes them lose the game and they can't keep moving on. Um, I also think that Dana was upset because while it was an NIT bid or it was an NIT game, that's still a postseason game, yet they're getting the same number of people that they got during the season. And I will and I will list the excuses that people will come up with right now. It was a Tuesday night or Wednesday night or whatever, whenever it was. Uh, the parking at Matthew Knight Arena is is shit. Excuse my language, but it is. I, I will give I will give anybody who made that an excuse a check mark because it is terrible. Uh, it's a little bit overpriced. It is a little bit overpriced. Um, but that hasn't stopped people from coming to games in the past. There are still plenty of people who will come to these games, and I get that it was a midweek game, but it's there's always been a midweek game going on at, at um, PK Park, <laughs> PK Park, Matthew Knight Arena, excuse me. Um, there were plenty of excuses as to why people don't show up, um, but I don't, I don't know, I don't buy them. I, I mean, I, they they can be legitimate excuses. I just feel like there are there's still the you know support your team factor even when they stink, and maybe that's the. Uh, East Coast person in me who will continuously watch any of my sports team, even if they're absolutely terrible. Um, but I think that's just how it goes. And I think Dana was upset the fact that Wisconsin said, hey, guys, here's our band. Uh, yeah, we brought yeah. our band. The only team that's ever brought their band in the history of Matthew Knight Arena, basically. <laughs> uh, I was stunned when I saw that on social media. But yeah, that's a that's a flex. It's a power move. And um you know, that's what the Big Ten is doing nowadays is they're kind of flexing on the Pac-12 when they can. Um, but I, I, I still think that Dana was more than in line about his comments. I think it's been... This was... Go ahead. I was going to say, like, it's it's been a poor attendance season, but I think what really piqued my interest in his comments was the fact that he just blamed it on the team again. That he just took all his frustration out on the on the attendance record or the attendance number, and then just blamed it on the team. And it's like, 
oh, these guys stink. I'm sorry. I don't know what you guys want me to do about <laughs> it. Like I, I'm trying to coach these guys and we just keep losing because they can't make free throws. Um, like, I don't know what else to do here. So I, I think Dano's in line and it's certainly not his fault as to why this team is not doing well. Um, he's a tremendous coach. And if Oregon were silly enough to let him go, uh, any program in the country other than like, uh, I don't know, maybe Kentucky. Well, actually not Kentucky at this point, but you know, a lot of programs in the country would be chomping at the bit to go get Dana Allman. And I, I, I think maybe the frustration, this is where maybe I can kind of understand it, is people say, oh, well, it's a bad year and it's a down year. And I think he's asking maybe some, for some loyalty from the fan base because he has 13 seasons at Oregon, 13 years with 20 or more wins on the season. Um, you combine every other head coach in program history, and they don't have 13 20 win seasons in their time. And mm-hmm. and so I, I think he's frustrated at like we've elevated the program here at Oregon. It's basically the bare minimum we have to do is win 20 games, which wasn't always a thing when I showed up here and people are upset when we have one down year and now two, they walk away. And, you know, I I think that's kind of where things are at right now. And maybe if I'm reading what he's trying to say is just like, Hey, like we had a big 10 team on campus in Eugene uh, for the first time in 10 years. 2012 was the last time a Big Ten team had played a game inside Matthew Knight Arena or inside Oregon's home court. Um, you know, Big Ten teams don't come here very often. Even though it's the NIT, it's kind of like this is an opportunity to see a blue blood, a, a big school, and no one showed up, which could be, mm-hmm. I get, frustrating. Um, it was interesting. I, I think it was awesome for him to say that. Uh, he certainly got people at the athletic department talking. He certainly got – people within the fan base talking. He calls himself someone who doesn't know how to promote. And I mean, you turn on social media, uh, you look at online uh, outlets that cover college basketball. They were talking about an NIT game on Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon uh, because of the comments that Dan Altman made. Um, Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens, what changes. Um, I don't know if, if, you know, if there's a ton um, but it, it's certainly going to spark a debate, I think, this summer. Um, the attendance numbers, look, there's no better way to know that what you're doing isn't working is by the number of people in in, in your seats. And mm-hmm. we know last two seasons that Oregon basketball hasn't been uh, an effective group on the court, and it's now reflecting it um, in the stands. And it's going to be interesting to see what, changes happen in both regards all right we're gonna take sure. a quick break have, when we come go i ahead. got i got one more thing before we go to break yeah i'd like yeah. to ad- address the matthew knight arena versus mac court allegations that have been going on okay. across the twitterverse i feel like people are forgetting the sabrina unescu years and the final four team and how amazing of an atmosphere matthew knight arena was um, those were great games. Those was, those are great crowds. Those are ten to twelve thousand people showing up and going to games and having an, a, an immersive environment that would rival anywhere on the West Coast and probably rival any college basketball atmosphere in the country. You, got, I mean, as the fans who are complaining that it is not as good as Mac Court, um, sure. I mean, I don't know. I've never been to a game of Mac Court. I've only gone to, to Mac Court to to take finals and to participate in intramural sports. So that's the only thing that I know about Mac Court. So I never went to a game. So I don't know the atmosphere. I'm terribly sorry. However, it is, you know, largely on part of the fans to get to Matthew Knight Arena and create an environment that would rival Mac Court if it yes. is in their eyes. So I am going after you, fans. Uh, you want to see nostalgia is a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug. And if you want to see it sound and feel like Matt court, although it is three times the size and it's right that Oregon is leaving that, that old facility um, it's on you to, to make it. I feel like Smokey the bear, like only you can, wildfires. <laughs> like only you can make it feel like Matt court um, by going to games and, su- and supporting the program. 
Um, and for the administration, you probably want to tick down the, the ticket prices a little bit. I think they're probably too high, but you know, it's not my uh, to give give you a sense, Jared, of Mac Court. Uh, you know how I'm going to say how tall I am. I'm not going to say how small I am. You know how mm-hmm. tall I am. How tall you uh, are? Yeah. Even I have to dip my head going down into the bowels of the arena to get to the media room inside mm-hmm. Mac Court. The ceilings are that low when you're walking down the stairs. Uh, sounds that, awesome. To give you an idea, to give you an idea, uh, if you want to go to a bathroom during a game at Matt Knight Arena and you're in the men's room, uh, be mm-hmm. prepared to, to walk through a puddle of piss uh, because mm-hmm. that's how hey, the, been, the uh, I've been that's just how the piping worked in that arena. Yeah, I, it's it's built. Fenway was built in 1912. It's basically like a trough in there. But yes. I mean, I've seen people, to my bewilderment, I've seen people on the social media universe compare Matt Court to Cameron Indoor Stadium. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it is not. I've been to Cameron Indoor Stadium. It is not. Um, and though, granted, I've never seen a game at Matt Court, but it's not the same thing. But again, you, this facility is fantastic over at Matthew Knight Arena. I don't think anybody yeah. on any either men's or women's team is complaining about it. It's just seems to be the fans that think it's too big. And even though it certainly felt like you could hear all ten to 12,000 people back in the Sabrina years, like when they beat Team USA or the Arizona game for that 2016 Final Four team where they threw powder onto the court to begin the game, um, feels like you were right next to the guy in the farthest row into the tallest part of Matthew Knight Arena. So I think I can certainly get back there. It just needs, again, this whole conversation that we're having just needs support of the fans yeah. to get it back and going. 100%. 100%. I'm in agreement there. All right. Now we'll take our quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss kind of just what Oregon's roster questions face, well, what the roster questions are coming up here in the offseason and what they could look like next year. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, Matt Prayman and Jared Mack here talking to Oregon men's basketball. Um, roster. Will Richardson is the only one gone. He has no options. He has to graduate and move on uh, and will pursue professional basketball opportunities. Everybody else, uh, all 11 scholarship players on its roster at this time have – uh, a year of eligibility at Oregon or anywhere else in college basketball, if they choose to use it because of the COVID season uh, or because they're an underclassman. Biddle, uh, Nate Biddle, Jermaine Kuznar both have said that they're coming back. Keyshard Bartholomew has said he's coming back, but he's also maybe going to just look and see what professional opportunities are available for him. Uh, that would be overseas, but he's essentially back as well. So you've got three starters or three quasi-starters back for next year. You've got three guys signed. um, Five-star forward Kwame Evans, five-star wing Mookie Cook, four-star and two-time state player of the year uh, point guard Jackson Shelstead have have committed. Um, You've also got a commitment from a junior college transfer and uh, Jadrian Tracy, 43% three-point shooter. So you have seven scholarship players acclimated for next season, uh, allocated next season. Uh, You have eight players who have years of eligibility left. Well, that means someone's going to leave. Someone has to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, Quincy Guerrier and Fale Dante, Rivala Soros, all seniors, all seniors with a year of eligibility. They will decide what they do, whether it's here, whether they go pro, whether they transfer. Khalil Ware has to make a decision on he's going pro or not, or does he come back to Oregon, or does he transfer? Tyron Williams, Brandon Rigsby, and Ethan Butler and Luke were uh, all juniors or in, in, or underclassmen, I should say. Rigsby's a sophomore. Ethan Butler is a, a redshirt freshman who's going to be medically redshirting this season. So those guys have decisions to make, and – I'll be honest, if I'm Oregon, there's some of these guys where it's like, 
if you come back, great. But if you choose to explore your options and hit the portal, it's probably in the best interest for both program, you know, both the program and the player to to do a fresh start reset here. So is it really if you come back, great? Or is it more like, oh boy, you came back? I mean, I think I think there's some guys that if they came back, it would be like, yeah, you're still going to be in a rotation. Are you going to accept a diminished role from what you had the year right. before or the previous two years? And if you're all in on that, awesome. That that makes us better. But if you're coming back and you're thinking you're going to be a starter or you, you think you're going to be the first guy off the bench like, and, and you're going to get upset at, at that not being the case, then it's probably best in your interest if you move on. I think that's where we're at with a couple of these guys. Yeah, I agree. I I just look at this offseason for Oregon as a potential blank slate because you bring in this great class full of a lot of good recruits and Jackson Shellstad, a local kid. And yeah, you could bring back all these guys, but you know, insanity is the doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, if you bring back Nafali Dante, Soares, Gurrier, all these guys for like their third year here at the program, I don't anticipate it going much differently. Um, you know, like for, for Gurrier's sake, I think he's a great player. I think he's a good role player. Oregon needs him to be more than a role player. And I'm not 100% sure that he can be on a night-to-night basis. Every once in a while, sure, I think he can do that. But He's not. He doesn't. He hasn't improved his shooting. Uh, his role is actually extremely diminished in the last couple or the last season or two, from being like a full-time starter to guy playing over thirty minutes a night to the second half of this season where Nate Biddle just clearly surpassed him as like the backup big or the second starting big, or they went small and had Soares out there. But and Soares is a guy who really did well in the NIT. But how much is that? how much of that was what we talked about earlier where he knows Dana doesn't have another guy to play instead of him. So he just feels a little bit more free. Um, those are two guys. And, you know, I kind of hate to say it, but I, if I were to follow it onto, I would go pro, you know, this is the first season he's shown. He was truly healthy uh, and healthy for the entire season. I know he had some little injury things in the NIT. Um, I think that was honestly a real sign that, hey, I'm thinking about going pro, so I'm not going to try and hurt myself here for just an NIT championship or maybe like a Final Four NIT bid. Um, because he, he, you know, he, he's a smart kid. He knows that his future is probably in the NBA. And honestly, Nafale could maybe get some second round looks, get an actual contract, go play in the NBA as a 6'11 guy who can rebound and play defense and maybe make a hook shot or two. Uh, there are plenty of guys who have had very long careers doing that so i think if you're oregon i mean i don't know what the coaching staff thinks but if it's me i'm looking at a blank slate you're gonna have thousands literal thousands of kids join the transfer portal after the tournament is over and you know that that mar that may deadline is approaching pretty quick now and i think you need to have your your eggs in your basket here i think you need to figure out that we want X amount of kids coming back and we want X amount of spots open. And I think those are going to be difficult decisions. But again, I really think that they can't just keep duct taping this team together with the same group of four or five guys and expecting any type of different results because clearly the last two seasons, this hasn't worked. And if they go into it again, you're three with a shiny new toy and Mookie Cook and Kwame Evans just like they did with Kalel Ware and anybody before CJ Walker, guys before him, I don't think it's going to work. So I think that this is a really, really important opportunity for Dane Altman and company to get right back onto the bike where they were beforehand and start going, start getting back to the Sweet 16 and getting into the tournament. So I don't know how many they take back. I just think that it's probably not going to be as many as people expect. Yeah, Dana said after the game against Wisconsin, uh, so we're going to get winners, we're going to get competitors, and if people appreciate that, great. And if they don't, then like I said, but our program is going to go and be about guys who want to be in the gym, want to compete here, and want to get better. And we're going to recruit guys that want to compete. And if winning is not enough, then like I said, you need to go in a different direction. And then he later talked about – I asked him, like, does he think that the proper DNA of the – 
culture he's talking about is currently in the program, or are they lacking that? And his response was not like we need it to be. Um, I, I think he sees a couple guys that are there that, that do this, um, but not enough. And he, he's referenced a ton of times, Peyton Pritchard, Dylan Brooks, J- Jordan Bell, Eugene Amarui, Chris Duarte. They don't have the mm-hmm. gym rats. Um, and he said, we have to evaluate each individual. And like I said, if anybody's got doubts about whether they want to be here and they're answer- you're answering your own question right away because you got to be all in. We're going to we're gonna go find those guys that are all in. We're going to get better and hopefully stay a little bit healthier next year. Um, because I, you're right. Like, I, I think it's probably best that we do see um, a clean slate for Oregon. There, you, you want some guys back. Um, I think that three guys that have said that they're coming back, it's a good start. Um, and, and it's a good foundation to build off of. And if you could get one or two more guys back on this roster um, from this season – and you, 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 you mix it with the four that you've got coming in, probably one or two more additions, that's going to be your, your makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of segues us to, to what's next for Oregon. Um, they've, I think it's reasonable to say that we're going to see four guys leave this program, whether that's, like you said, in Folly Dante going pro, whether that's also Kalel Ware, you know, having an NBA team be enticed enough to draft him in the first round, and he goes pro. Um, he's still first round, late first round draft pick from a projection standpoint. Um, whether that's a guy like you know Quincy Guerrier, who has seen his minutes diminish over the course of this season, a player is coming into the program that plays his position. Um, Biddle is coming back. Does does he look around? Does he leave? Tyrone Williams was a JUCO. Um, All-American and hardly played this season. Does does he see a bigger role next year or much of the same? And if it's much of the same, does he look somewhere else to play? I, I don't know those answers. I'm not saying that those are happening, but those are all reasonable expectations. You know, those are all reasonable outcomes uh, for this team. Um, what what does a Rivaldo Soares do? Like mm-hmm. very, very solid defender for Oregon, um, but has struggled at times with consistency He's from Boston. Does does he say like I want to go play at a lower level where you know, I can play closer to home? You know, use this extra year of eligibility, which you know I haven't played near my family for four years. I, I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he maybe he's okay with with coming back. Maybe he wants a new start. I don't know, but I, I think it's reasonable to say that four you know probably four guys on this roster will not be here next season, which would in turn give Oregon two open roster spots, if more, if not more. Um, but let's just operate with the idea that Oregon has two spots to fill currently. Um, I, I almost think it's just, I don't care what position, find the two best shooters you can find. I don't care if it's a forward. I don't care if it's a center. I don't care if it's a point guard. Find guys that can hit three-pointers and that can create and have that winning attitude, that winning culture built into their system already. Yeah, I think that would certainly help. Um, I think in the quotes that you just read, Dan Altman laid out what he wants to see from a player. Um, And I think he laid out that he expects a lot of changes because that very few players on the team this year had those kind of characteristics. So I think those that's what they're going to be hunting. I think in this hypothetical scenario where if Ale Dante leaves and to go pro or just is done with college, whatever the case may be, they need to find a backup big 100% um, because they would really only have Nate Biddle and Kwame, Kwame Evans Jr., KJ Evans Jr., and that's not good enough. Uh, neither of those guys are going to be physical enough to compete with uh, somebody like a UCLA with a Dembona if he stays um, or their two backup bigs. Uh, those guys are just way more physically imposing. Um, Arizona's usually always got a big that's going to be physically imposing as well. Um, you know, a guy that they would <laughs> that they like I'm saying all you look for is a guy like Frank Kepnong was just a big guy who's going to play defense and rebound, come off the bench, play 10 to 12 minutes of just pure energy and just call it a day. 
And if we're only working with two spots, that's one of them. And yeah, like you said, it's got to be a shooter. And it would be really great if they could find a dude who's like six foot eight to six foot nine and it's just a three and D wing. If you could find a guy who is the same size and shape as Quincy Gurrier, who can just shoot 41% from deep, good Lord, that would help this team so much next season. And I think that's what they're got to be all the way in on. Um, I feel like they're going to have more than two open spots available yeah. to hit in the transfer portal. But yeah, you get one of them absolutely has to be a big, in my opinion, uh, especially if, if Nafale leaves and it's just Nate Biddle and, and Ware is gone as well, whether he transfers or whether he goes pro, uh, you got to get another big, uh, just an, like a full size center and then somebody who can shoot. And I think you have some guards that can shoot. Um, I just worry about the forward shooting. Uh, like Mookie Cook is not necessarily known as a shooter. He's got a good stroke, but it hasn't really gone in at the high school level. Uh, Kwame has been a good shooter from mid-range. Um, I'm not sure if that three-point shot is really all there yet, but he's a jack-of-all-trades kid, so I think that he'll just fit into an offense regardless. And then, you know, Shellstad can shoot. Um, yep. The guy that Oregon just landed, Tracy, uh, he's a 42% percent Point forty-two uh, percent from three, so I think he's a real shooter. They just need somebody who's another six foot eight, six foot nine guy who can who could stroke it. That's I mean, really they they need shooting. Like uh, gosh, I don't know. Like like I need air to breathe at this point. I'd be I'd be surprised if Ware and Dante both come back. I think it's one or the other. You're not getting mm-hmm. you're not getting both. And let's unless you've got any overarching topics left to talk about, let's be, have this one be the end because I think this is, this is a fascinating decision that I think Oregon staff is going to have to make here. Um, what do you do if Dante and Ware both come to you individually and mm-hmm. say, Hey, look, it's my understanding that, Khalil Ware is probably going to go pro. I think if he does, I'm going to come back. But uh, if he comes back, though, I, I don't think I can come back because I want to be able to, you know, know I'm going to play consistently with Biddle being here too. And I just don't think, you know, the three of us together, there's enough minutes for me to showcase what I want to do. Or if it's Khalil Ware, I want to come back. But if Dante's coming back, I, I'm going to have to portal because I need minutes to show that I'm, you know, to the NBA. Who you choose is going to be fascinating because mm-hmm. Dante is the better player, hands down, the better player. But I think where better fits the style that you want to play in today's day and age of college basketball, but his inconsistencies were so up and down that yeah. I don't know if you can rely on that every single night. Yeah, I was going to ask, do I have like a con- contractual agreement, like signature <laughs> to paper from where that he's going to put in like X amount of, amount of hours at the gym? or Because, yeah, you're right, Nafale Dante is the better player. But, man, the ceiling of Khalil Ware, I've been talking about it for months now, it intrigues me to no end. I mean, it's a guy who's 6'11", who can jump out of the gym and shoot threes. Like, good Lord. Um, you know, whenever they played Ware and Biddle together, there's always a, th- a threat that one of those guys can make a three. Yep. And then when you have two of them on the court, that sounds really nice to me. Both guys really long and lanky. It's uh, similar to what Oregon has done in the past. Um, and so, I don't know. This is a, It's a tough question because it, you know, it goes against what I just said about the insanity thing of trying to run this back for a third or fourth year in a row. But like you said, where's inconsistencies just – kind of plagued the team at points. Uh, I'm sure Dana thought that heading into the season that that was somebody he could rely on for long stretches of minutes where either any big man had foul trouble or at least he was somebody that could start potentially alongside Dante as a stretch four. Gosh, this is a tough one. I'm going to go – I'm going to stick with my guns. I'm going to say give me Khalil Ware. Just let me see if we can reach his ceiling, and if it doesn't happen, he can transfer mid-year. I don't know. Where did block the most shots? Uh, he's on the a, he's team a this physical season. freak, but and he just doesn't. He only play played hard. 15 minutes a game. Dante played 11 more minutes than he did. Um, Biddle played three more minutes than Ware did. Uh, and Ware also was benched for a game during the season, and yet mm-hmm. he still had 45 blocks. Dante had 43. 
But I think that just tells you 10 less minutes per game where was more effective in blocking shots. Now he did play, you know, where did play four more games than Dante. So that probably helps there, but where's in the top 10 for a single season block number uh, at Oregon um, can shoot the three. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wasn't the best this season. I think he shot well, like uh, I'm trying to find it. I was 27%. Just say like, yeah. He was probably a little too three happy at point, but yes, you know, look at like, I just keep thinking about what he did at the PK-80 where there was no big man. It was just him yeah. and Will Richardson. And, like, that's the type of stuff where your eyes just start to open. You're like, holy cow. Like, he was putting up, you know, like 20, 20 and 10 on nearly every night uh, except for one of the games. And he had 18. Like, he had 18 and 9 against UConn, 17 and 9 against Michigan State, 13 and 7. Uh, against Villanova, and he was four of 13 on three-pointers in that game. But he went six of eight from the floor against UConn, seven of 17 against Michigan State, and six of 11 against Villanova. He was, like you said, unstoppable offensively. Yeah, and and if uh, if I were Eric Musselman over at Arkansas, and I saw Kyle Will where hit the portal. If there's one coach oh, yeah. that can maybe get something out of this out of him to try every time, it's the must bus. And man, I would I would hate watching that team because I think I think Ware has on his potential is so high. That's why he was the number two uh, center in the country out of his out of the class last year behind Derek Lively at Duke. But that's a tough question, but I'm still gonna stick with Ware. I'm gonna stick with my guns of not uh, not being insane and doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Um, I'm fascinated to see what Oregon's roster will look like, uh, what decisions they will make, and who they pursue in the transfer portal. We already know a couple of names that they are going after. Um, we will have some of that on DuckTerritory.com here, you know, later on this week. Um, and it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a fascinating offseason for a lot of regards. Uh, I don't think it's a point where Oregon wants to get rid of Dana Altman. I don't think it's a point where Oregon wants where Dana wants to get rid of Oregon. Um, but it's a turning point for the program. It's a it's a fork in the road for the program. Uh, and to cover it all, we'll be doing it at DuckTerritory.com. Until then, thank you for listening to this edition of the Odds and Audible's podcast. Peace.